Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Alejandro Ponce de Leon from the University of California, Davis. We're joined today by Christina Lyons, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and affiliated with the Program in Environmental Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we will be talking about her book, Vital Decomposition, Soil Practitioners and Life of Politics, published by Duke University Press in 2020. In Vital Decomposition, Christina offers an ethnography of human-soil relations by following the practical engagements of soil scientists and peasants across labs, forests, and farms, the book attends to the struggles and collaborations between multiple actors over the meaning of peace, productivity, rural development, and sustainability in contemporary Colombia. Welcome, Christina, to New Books in Environmental Studies. Thanks so much, Alejandro. I'm really pleased to be here today talking to you about this. Thanks for the invitation. Would you want to start by telling us a little bit more about yourself? I know you received a PhD from anthropology at UC Davis, but I would like to learn a little bit more about how you got involved or interested in this field of study. How do you ended up conducting fieldwork in Colombia? Uh, sure. So um, I have a background in creative writing and um, Spanish or or more precisely, Latin American literature. And um, when I started a joint MA program in journalism and Latin American studies at UT Austin, um, my I was kind of directed more towards anthropology. Um, it was recommended to me as a way to do sustained rather than kind of parachute kinds of investigative research and, and supposedly less censorship um, over an editing intervention in, in the kind of research that I wanted to be doing. And um, so um, before I started fieldwork in Colombia, I had worked in human rights, uh, labor rights, and also on displacement um, by large infrastructural projects in other parts of Central and South America. And um, with a particular focus on on U.S. interventions, foreign policy, corporate, military, and and otherwise. And I came to the project in Southern Colombia that that informs um, this book after working as a consultant at INRED in, in Quito, Ecuador, Colombia, it's a um, human rights organization in Ecuador. Um, and I was an independent consultant there um, um, looking at what happens to Colombian refugees who are denied status, who are denied status as refugees. Um, and this is where I really um, learned about the impacts of the U.S.-Colombia war on drugs um, and the denial of refugee status to people who have been displaced due to the aerial fumigation of glyphosate many of which um, of, these, of these folks are from Putumayo. And that's how I came about this, this work and got affiliated with human rights um, and policy watch groups in, in Colombia, um, Asociación Minga, and also um, Witness for Peace. And, and that's, that's how I came about the, the work that um, informed this book in, in the last 17 years kind of, of, my, of my life. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the southern region of Colombia in which your book is situated? Maybe starting with its history or geography, what makes this place different from other parts of Colombia? 
Yeah, so the Andean uh, Amazonian foothills and, and plains of Colombia, or the, or the Western Amazon, where the book is really situated, is a tri-frontier region of the country, bordering Peru and Ecuador. And the Colombian Amazon, like, like the larger Amazon basin, um, is made up of, of heterogeneous worlds. But there is a shared and distinct history that unfolded between the eastern and western Amazon of the country, beginning with the Spanish colonization in, in the 15th century and Jesuit and Franciscan missionization um, that's, that, that influenced, that entered into the region. And um, the western Amazon has been a site of extraction of kind of boom and bust economies, um, starting back from the rubber boom, um, quina, skins, timber, um, especially with the, with, the, with the famous and destructive um, Casa um, Arana in, in the early 1900s that reconfigured indigenous territories and life worlds in, in, the, in, the, in the Amazon, in the western part of the Amazon. And um, this, this part of the, this region has been a receptor of waves of colonization since the 1930s, um, starting with the Colombian-Peru War, and especially in the 1950s with um, displaced um, families and, and individuals from the bipartisan violence in the interior of the country. And um, then in the 1960s with state-directed colonization um, projects and, and the oil boom that began, in, in, in especially in the Putumayo, um, Department of Putumayo. And then later um, in the 1980s, around the 1980s, with the, with the um, cocoa cultivation um, what the state calls illicit coca crops that really intensified and propelled another round of, of migration to, um, to, to the region. And Putumayo, along with um, Caquetá and Guaviare, the other two departments um, you can think of as the Western Amazon of Colombia, have been the epicenter of the U.S.-Colombian war on drugs, and especially the aerial fumigation policy and, and alternative, quote-unquote, alternative development interventions. Um, it's also a territory that, that has been in the epicenter of the um, internal armed conflict in the country, um, really a hegemonic presence, territorial presence of the FARC after um, they disputed with other insurgent groups, also paramilitary repression and backlash that came upon the presence of the FARC, pushing them into the rural corridors and really taking over um, many of the small towns and, and kind of more urban areas at different points. And I think Putumayo in, in, in this region, the Andean Hills and Plains, um, is a really very inter-ethnic world um, with campesinos, indigenous people, also Afro-Colombian communities that um, have been pushed into this region, whether they're originary communities or, or, um, or voluntary or involuntary um, displaced or migrant communities. And so there's an enormous amount of biocultural diversity that um, really defines this, this area that that, I mean, a lot of the discourse focuses around state abandonment, and um, and there's been a particular kind of state presence, unfortunately, one that's focused really more on militarization and, and, and police presence and um, kind of repressive policies from the sky, like the aerial fumigation and not so much social services and other forms of state presence. But but I also really think that it's important to put emphasis on, on the biocultural diversity of the region just as much as, as we can think through these other um, kind of discourses of state absence and, and violence. I think that something that it's important for us as we think about El Putumayo is Plan Colombia. Would you expand a little bit more of what Plan Colombia entails for the region? Yeah, so Plan Colombia is um, the name of the, the another name for the, the U.S. Uh, war on drugs, the, the foreign policy package um, that um, really began in 2000. 
Um, and, and there were different stages of Plan Colombia um, that went up really into 2012 or 2014 even. Um, but, but the focus of the kind of aid that came from the United States um, through this foreign policy was um, 80% really um, through these periods, military and police, um, strengthening military and police force and rule of law. And also with a huge focus on um, counter-narcotics um, strategies, whether it be manual um, eradication, forced eradication of illicit crops, or the aerial fumigation um, with glyphosate, which is really um, the core component, one of the central components of, of the war on drugs, which has um, been um, the use of, of Monsanto's glyphosate in a very concentrated formulation uh, formula um, and sprayed um, you know, indiscriminately really over entire ecologies where um, illicit crops are supposedly located and has been really ineffective um, and environmentally destructive and, and also um, destructive to the public health of communities in these, in these um, cocoa-growing regions um, because of the fact that the aerial fumigation, um, unsurprisingly, right, is hitting um, pastures and watersheds and local schools and subsistence crops and, and affecting people's health and, and not really um, at all ever eradicating the um, supposed illicit crops, right? They, they end up um, moving around Colombia um, as the fumigation kind of focuses in, in one area, the coca moves to another. And Putumayo and um, Caquetá and Guaviare were really the epicenters of this kind of intervention um, um, and the millions of dollars that came through the alternative development that was another, it was kind of the, um, a different side of the same coin um, of the of the of the eradication and then the alternative development supposedly substituting those crops and these projects mainly failed and that's really one of the focuses of the book is is that um, because because they were export oriented so it was an export oriented illicit crop meant to replace an uh, export oriented illicit crop um, and really no other imagining of an alternative um, agroecological world that could exist in in these regions um, of the of the Amazon unfortunately. So now I want to talk about the book. So whenever we hear the word ethnography, we usually think about people or people in places. The book is, however, an ethnography of soil and soil practices. What do you mean by that? So I talk about following practices that make practitioners rather than already existing categories such as soil scientist or soil or uh, rural human communities, <laughs> Right, so I'm interested in, in, in the book and how soils become, become such, right? And, and in the making of soil also makes or unmakes their specialist or the state soil scientists and the heterogeneous range of scientists that I, that I uh, do follow through my fieldwork. So the book is um, thinking about how objects and subjects are made through relations, right? And that are, are not already existing categories. Um, and I'm also interested in, in the book in, in, in decolonizing practices that unravel liberal ideas of, of the human that undo the nature-culture binaries that oblige the human to tame or domesticate the, the selva, the Amazon. Um, so rather than, than the book, um, you know, following, following the, 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 the thinking through the human, um, I'm really thinking about the process of becoming, becoming some other kind of human, an Amazonian human, or what I talk about in the book as selvacinos, rather than campesinos. So Amazonian human, one that inhabits, eats, shits, exchanges differently. Um, so the ethnography also moves between laboratories and greenhouses and government offices and monocrop fields in Bogota and other urban centers of the country in the interior and selva realities, agrarian protests, huertas and huertos, gardens and social movements 
in, in Putumayo and, and also in Sucumbios, Ecuador, in a small area of Nariño. Um, so I move between these practitioners that don't directly dialogue or meet with each other, but that are intimately connected as matters of concern for one another, objects, as objects of intervention for each other, and, and even unlikely allies or potential allies. And, and so that's kind of the way that I, I, I think through um, the relations rather than, than the already um, existing, like, quote-unquote, community or object or subject. So studies of regions like Putumayo tend to focus on the violence and destruction that comes with armed violence, right? Your book, while dealing with these themes, it tries to slow down our thinking about death and destruction and tries to invite us to see these processes through different lenses. As you suggest in the introduction of the book, the networks of campesinos and indigenous communities that you met in and around Putumayo quickly taught you that violence was not the only story to be told. They obliged you to turn your ethnographic attention away from what was raining down on them from crop dusters to kinds of propositional life-making processes being actualized in the midst of chemically degraded ecologies. Could you please tell us a little bit more about this turn in your work and practice and about how these life processes become? I honestly find it fascinating and really knew how your book tries to tie decay and death to the process of life through ethnography. Um, yeah, so this was um, one of the, the, key, the key shifts in, in the project and in, in my thinking. Um, and what I saw, especially through my, my kind of work with human rights organizations and these policy watch groups, was that they were doing an extraordinary job um, and important work denouncing the violence um, that was occurring in, in the region. Um, but that the project that I'd originally thought I was going to be, be engaged in, which was a, with a focus on the aerial fumigation policy and toxicity in science and non-scientific collaborations and advocacy work, um, really kind of trapped me in, in a little bit in a position of denouncing, denouncing and critiquing, critiquing the policy and denouncing the policy. And at the time, um, there, there was a real um, move in Colombia, even from human rights organizations and um, I would say like, you know, activist scientists away from um, critiquing this policy because it was a dead end. It was really looking grim about the possibility of transforming the aerial fumigation um, policy and, and the war on drugs and the repressive nature of it and transforming, and transforming that. And when I was doing my preliminary field work, um, you know, that upon, you know, visiting the Ojarasca, the, the first Amazonian farm school that, that I discussed in the opening of the, of the book and meeting Eraldo and Nelson and Elva and many other families in, in, in agrarian social movements, um, that I was pushed to, to, to think about more than denouncing uh, the problem or diagnosing the problem, but um, about the propositions of the proposals that were, not as, that were not given as much attention in the region, that were the, were the real um, struggles of people in, in their everyday, but also in mobilized ways and organized ways to transform, to transform this, the reality and transform their relations with the territory um, outside of the established models um, that were either, you know, the dominant um, agricultural or the um, narco-trafficking and illicit, illicit economy options. And so I take seriously um, this need to, to be propositional in the book in terms of my fieldwork with the, not only with the rural communities, but with uh, the network of scientists and um, that, that I follow and that I work with. And, and I think that this really emerged um, on, from, you know, uh, from taking inspiration from 
both the ojarasca, what I talk about in the book from the ojarasca itself, right? The materiality, the temporality, the um, movement, the intensity, the velocity of ojarasca. And um, my readings of Isabel Stangers at, uh, during my, my, my training in, in cultural anthropology. And the ojarasca um, made, was making the farmers engage in a slowing down process, a slowing down of reason, reasoning, really, and reclaiming practices that, um, and also being inventive, right? So it wasn't just a return to an idealized past, but about reclaim, reclaiming practices um, and trying to make them proliferate, reclaiming and relaying what I talk about in the book, um, I'm thinking with Stangers. And, and so that shift in the project um, pushed me towards um, La Ojarasca and La Ojarasca and what becomes soil and what, and what cannot be soil, right? What is not scientifically uh, ca categorized or classified as soil because it poses uh, challenges to that classification system and the making of an object that can be separated from its relational contingency, its interdependency. Um, and, that, and that's what, um, you know, that, that became the focus of the, of the book. Um, and, and that the, the so, this, this, this ojarasca that was escaping um, classification as soil and that could not be turned into the prime agricultural soils of industrial agriculture was really the inspiration to think about how life and death are not, um, not in this biopolitical bio move to um, stave off death or to um, oppose them, or to, but also to understand that um, sedimentation happens also through destruction, that decay also produces germination, that there is no guarantee, there is no clinging to life in a context of um, you know, social and armed conflict um, as it, as it, as it, as it um, connects with the war on drugs, but, but that there was a, um, a, a different move a different move on the part of the communities and the families or the alternative agricultural networks that I, that I was, uh, had the, the, the opportunity um, to, to work with for so many years. Um, and and that, that was the shift in the project. And was, it, was, it was following those movements um, that were not binary. They were not binary movements. Um, and, and really trying to think about bettering conflict. How do you better, <laughs> bettering conflict and, and to get outside of these kind of tolerance on the one hand or eradication models on the other or zero tolerance policies really that, that are the, the state model um, and getting outside of, outside of those kind of binaries um, in, as an ethical political project, but also as a, the materiality of Ojarasca itself um, and, and what kind of thinking that was producing, what kind of slowing down that was producing. And also for the scientists that I started to work with, right, that the Ojarasca posed different um, enigmas for them um, that became problems. Well, for the rural families that I was working with in the Amazon, it wasn't a problem to be solved, but rather was an opportunity to unlearn and relearn, which has really became the focus of, of the book. So we've been thinking about La Ojarasca and its materiality. However, there's a second Ojarasca that you've already mentioned, the school. Uh, and in the school in itself is central to the story that you're presenting here. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work that La Ojarasca is doing? Uh, what kind of practices are we talking about? Yeah, so La Jorasca was an um, Amazonian farm school that um, at the time, um, in 2007, when, when, when I first visited it, was being supported by SINEP, um, which is um, a center in Bogota that supports the popular education um, and, and research and, and other topics. And, and SINEP was, was financing um, this, this school, which was really a space for, at the time, like, around 100 uh, campesino and indigenous um, um, 
folks to get trained in um, Amazonian agriculture, to get a diploma in Amazonian agriculture in, in, in this farm school setting. And, and it was really, um, as I talk about in the book, um, in a kind of devastated landscape that had been demoralized and silenced by the war on drugs and the repressive nature of, of the aerial spraying and um, the uh, effects that had on subsistence crops and the, the forestry and, and just agriculture in general. This, this space um, was a really um, inspiring, literally uh, pulsating space of life-making practices that um, that that became the central place as where I first met Eraldo, who became one of my central interlocutors and co-thinkers and the protagonist of, of, the, of the manuscript. Um, and the farm school, as I talk about in the book, um, didn't didn't survive past um, a few a few years, really, when the Senate funding ended. The, the farm school was handed back to a, a local um, campesino organization. Um, and and that isn't unlike many of the other kind of externally funded projects in Putumayo, but what was more important was the kind of energies that that, that that farm school was gathering and the potentiality to multiply these practices. And I don't like to call them, I, I don't call them agroecological practices because that was um, something important to my interlocutors, to the campesino and alternative agricultural practitioners in the book was to distinguish um, um, themselves from concepts like permaculture, organic agriculture, agroecology. Because these these kind of concepts are not necessarily eroded, rooted in Amazonian um, ancestral and traditional and, and popular practices, but also don't necessarily distance them from industrial agriculture. Because you can have industrial organic agriculture with inputs, chemical and commercial inputs, not chemical. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start over about that part. <laughs> um, Having um, organic agriculture can can be based on commercial inputs just as much as 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 um, you know commercial industrial agriculture. Um, so replacing the in the commercial inputs is not really the 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 goal, right? It's about returning to um, recovering and also innovating practices to learn how to farm um, alo amazonico um, according to selva logics and selva um, selva ethics really and selva temporalities. Um, and, and, and learning rather than to um, colonize the selva and to recolonize the farm with the selva. And that's really the kind of practices that were being taught at La Jarasca Farm School that Eraldo was involved in and then um, was multiplying outside of that, that particular farm school setting um, through his, his kind of um, um, informal agricultural technical assistance and advocacy work in, with other rural communities um, in, in the area. The book in itself is a beautiful ethnography, but it also offers a wide range of concepts, which you're co-thinking with your interlocutors. Amongst them, we find Heraldo Vallejo, who you just mentioned, and it's who is also known in the region as El Hombre Amazonico, the Amazonian man. I admire how you, your work stays with the concepts that Heraldo is proposing and uh, that emerge from his own practical engagements with different life worlds in the region. But more importantly, I find that the way you use these concepts to raise important ethical and political questions is quite innovative. The book in itself suggests that it emerged from taking serious decolonizing enactments of asymmetry as a conceptual and political, or better yet, life proposal 
that displaces the primacy of knowing in favor of ongoing processes of unlearning and relearning. So what anthropologists call emic perspectives are here raised as the poetics that the field in itself is offering. Could you tell me more about your relation with Heraldo as a co-thinker? What decolonizing entailed for your project? So Heraldo, Nelson and Elva and, and many other families and, and social movement leaders um, are organic philosophers for me, or organic intellectuals. And I tried to build what Kim Talbert calls a shared conceptual, a shared conceptual ground with them uh, without erasing our differential uh, positions and, and, and privileges. So to really think about the kinds of research questions in that shared conceptual ground. And not to explain their proposals or their concepts that they, that they taught me um, through relational theories of new materialism or feminist science studies or political ontologies and, and their analytics, um, which I've been trained in, in in my graduate school training. But to put these ideas in conversation with their ideas and push back on these relational theories. Um, using the kinds of relational practices and in, in, in thinking of, of my interlocutors. So um, I'm always thinking about um, the publics in Colombia with whom I'm engaging. Um, and the mode of doing research um, and the conceptual creativity um, of, the, of the farmers I worked with, the campesinos, really um, was an invitation against extractivism in all its forms. And as they're also rejecting right <laughs> extractivism and all its kind of manifestations, so um, really that that became a um, you know in my conversations with Heraldo, we would um, in which I would you know be presenting uh, before I presented papers or any chapters showing the work to him, and um, and we would have joking conversations about the poetics of shit, for instance, <laughs> or the poetic writing about decay and decomposition. And um, and how beautiful I, I made that sound right in the book, <laughs> and and um, and and it wasn't a problem, right? It was actually um, there was an embracing of that create that that kind of um, affective um, sense, the sense sensorial aspects, right? Because the proposal of um, making life happier, right, on the part of these farmers, which is a way to say like making life um, happier and not making it better, quote unquote, better, but to help people remain remain rather than be displaced and dispossessed um, is wrapped up in questions of happiness, of emotion, of sentiment, caring, hope, love, and that potentiality. And multiplying that through the resonating farms that I talk about, literally through the way that farms as they come back to life and come to life in a different way, resonate and create a vital energy that, that then proliferates from farm to farm, which is not the same as convincing your neighbor or, or imposing a model on another, on the other, right? Um, and so that kind of um, vital, vital spaces, the creation of those vital spaces, was an invitation to think affectively and aesthetically about life, making life happier, <laughs> and what are the aesthetics of that? And um, and so that was part of our conversations, and 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 because the, these farmers are um, are are against um, privatization and in, in, in the kinds of individualization that that. That that's based on and, and produces and reproduces. They um, were really happy to invite me to to also engage in my creative conceptualizations with the concepts that we were thinking together or that they were they were teaching me, and um, and so as long as I stayed true to their arguments when I was talking about their arguments, right? I had the creative um, 
license, right, to engage in my own conceptual work. And this is really, it's, 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 it's very similar to their thoughts about, for instance, like their philosophy about community seed banks. And the idea of a community seed bank isn't to store the seed, isn't to keep it for myself or my family, but it's to proliferate, to share, to, to uh, sow, to, to plant, right? And for more people to take up these seeds and plant them and experiment with them and their medicinal and nutritional uses in their own way on their farms and their gardens and their forests. And so that was a similar kind of logic about the um, way concepts were able to travel and, and one could make them their own through their own creative work. And that was part of the proliferation. Um, and the kind of anti-privatization um, move um, um, or intellectual property move that the farmers also um, extended to me in, in, my, in my ethnographic work. Um, and I think that another you know, part of the project was, was taking serious the, um, the need to write and publish in both languages, in both Spanish and English, and to engage in popular education projects just as much as academic publications and producing other kinds of non-academic materials for and with the community and about inhabiting academia in an engaged, um, engaged way as a public engagement, I'm kind of thinking about public engaged scholarship. And I think that this work um, um, with the, you know, my, my three years that I did the intense field work with these, with these families really, um, really taught me um, about ways of doing public engaged scholarship. Um, so I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And I think that's, that's a way that is reflected not only in the book, I hope, but, but beyond in, in, in the ways that I continue to um, working in and outside of academia. Contemporary Colombia is a country that may be characterized by its rapid and maybe at times radical transformations. The book was written when the national government was undergoing peace negotiations with some of the main armed actors in its historical armed conflict. What has changed in Colombia since you wrote the book? And what has happened to these landscapes that you have been writing about since then? So the... Post peace accord uh, scenario in Colombia, and, and I and I say that you know um, very deliberately to call it a post peace accord and not a post conflict setting. Um, there have been some very concrete changes in in the um, regions that that were the epicenters of, of the internal conflict, such as Putumayo. Um, you know, their suspension of the aerial fumigation uh, in 2015 was very important. Um, and, it, and its impacts, although um, there has been manual um, application of glyphosate um, and the counter-narcotics police um, have permitted that, and, and there's a whole debate happening right now about the reactivation of aerial fumigation, whether it's with glyphosate or some other um, chemical substance. But the suspension of the aerial fumigation was, was important. The signing of the peace accords, the demobilization uh, officially of, of, of the FARC um, really allowed for more public life, more movement, um, definitely less military um, retents on, on, on the roads, on the highways. Um, and um, there was a real opening. There was a real sense of hope um, that the peace accord would be, the peace accord, the agreements would be implemented and, and that places like Putumayo for the first time would have um, voice, voz y voto, right? Voice and protagonism in, 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 their, in reshaping their region through the pedets, through the... Um, the um, development plans with territorial focus and the alternative um, crop substitution programs, right? The democratization, the democratization supposedly of um, the anti-drug policy and um, the inter-agrarian reform and all the different promises made in the peace accords. And there was definitely um, a real sense of, of hope and, and possibility and, and much more participation, more participation in scenarios that never existed before. 
but unfortunately, um, that window um, when there was there was a sense of shift and of change um, has slowly closed again, and and the perpetuation of conflict, the persistence of killing of of social leaders and of um, you know former um, demobilized combatants, and especially connected to uh, you know environmental activists or guardians of territories and. Um, um, has been, um, in, you know, has, has, has continued, has perpetuated in, in places like Putumayo, uh, as well as the um, intensification of extractivism, of concessions being granted um, to oil um, and, and mining, industrial mining um, operations, and, and that peace created this opening, right, for reconfigurations of, of, of armed actors and dissident groups and mafia and narco-trafficking networks in places and territories where the FARC um, demobilized and, 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 and departed from these territories um, officially and left them open to new vulnerabilities and different kinds of you know, environmental degradation intensifying, deforestation intensifying, illegal mining intensifying. And unfortunately, that's been the case in, in Putumayo and in, in, the, in the surrounding region. At the same time, that you know the country is participating in a transitional justice process. There are truth commissions. There are um, um, reparations um, and criminal prosecution um, happening. There has also been a biocentric legal turn in the country that's interfacing with this transitional justice of proliferation of rights of nature cases. And there, um, in 2018, there was a legal sentence, sentence uh, 4360 in Colombia, that recognized the Amazon as a subject of rights and, and of, of you know legal. Um, personhood in the sense of um, requiring special protection and being granted those kinds of protection. And so all of this is happening, right? So we can see that there are, there are certain shifts, there are certain continuities, there are certain, um, unfortunately, intensifications of violence and of conflict and perpetuation. Um, but there are also different actors now entering into the region. Um, and with this sentence of the, the Amazon, um, that, that's also created a different, um, I don't know if I would say like a different dynamic, but, but, um, a different, um, on the one hand, in discursively speaking, appreciation of the Amazon, right, in, in, in its entirety, not just the eastern side, but also the western side that was um, the really epicenter of the, of the war on drugs and the, and the internal armed conflict. Um, and, and I think that, that, that there's potentiality there. There's also that, that legal sentence was done without a lot of participation from regional actors or local inhabitants, so that also um, replicates... Um, Kind of the Andean-centric way that the country has related to its to its um, regions and to the Amazon, um, unfortunately. But um, you know, so the folks that are the protagonists in my book continue doing their everyday work. Um, they continue um, trying to organize and proliferate these practices, and to um, and there has been, you know, there have been um, um, new cohesions and strengthening of, um, of the alternative agricultural um, networks in, in the area um, at the same time that, that, that communities are confronted by, um, you know, uncertainty and unfortunately um, continued threats and, and, um, and, and the extractivism. And I think that's really the core, the core one of the core um, elements that there cannot be, um, you know, peace um, without social justice and social justice is not only for the social being in terms of the human community, but thinking about the array of um, actors that, um, that are casualties of war and the impacts of the war on the territory and the socio-ecological damages or harms in the territory as a victim. And I think this is definitely the case 
in, in, in Putumayo. And, and that is really the work of building territorial constructions of peace that communities are, are continuing to do without the guarantees, um, as I talk about in my book, without really institutional support. But unfortunately, there's a huge disillusionment about the implementation of the peace accords and, um, and, the, and the real lack of um, the, the state's commitment to implementing these accords. Um, and, and, and I think that there's a lot of uncertainty about what will happen with the cocoa growers in the region once the, the PENICE program, this, um, the, the subsidy um, program um, ends and really what kind of real alternatives will have been produced for alternative livelihoods. And I think, unfortunately, that model of the pennies replicated the earlier war on drugs alternative development models in, in ways that are, not, that are not going to be successful. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty at the same time that people continue carrying on, and not just carrying on, but flourishing, as I talk about in, in the book, um, really in every act, trying to make a different future, right? The potentiality that exists in every actuality, and that continues that continues in Putumayo and, and in all of Colombia. Cristina, after vital decomposition, what will your next research project be? So, um, upon finishing this um, this this manuscript, you know, for the past couple of years, I've been working on two different kind of sets of projects in Colombia. One um, is um, a participatory action research project um, to support the a community-based um, um, recovery of a watershed. So. Um, territorial ordinance and um, conservation and recovery of a watershed, but a community-based process to do that in the Amandara River watershed in, in, Put, in Puerto Guzman, Putumayo, one of the second largest municipality in, in Putumayo. And, and that's been a project of um, a couple of years, uh, working with um, La Fundación Itarca in a local NGO, a local foundation in, in Puerto Guzman, uh, reconstructing the environmental or what is it, the socio-ecological memory of war. Um, in this particular watershed, so doing and, and really doing a project about community-based modes of reconciliation and reconciliation processes that are only trying to repair the fractured relationships between uh, human communities and that are inter-ethnic in this particular watershed. But how do we reconcile with territories that have also been casualties of multi-layers of, of, of violence? And, and um, so that's been one project um, that I've been working on um, in the last couple of years. And the second project um, focuses more on collaborations with um, legal spheres in Colombia. So with judges, prosecuting attorneys, with the uh, attorney general's office and with lawyers, sets of lawyers um, around um, one, on the one hand, training um, prosecuting attorneys in that are agrarian, environmental and land restitution um, attorneys on how to um, think through historical and socio-environmental conflicts in the territories that they're making decisions over and legal concepts and legal rulings over. And on the other hand, um, I, I was luckily granted a Fulbright to uh, start um, working, collaborating with the HEP, the Transitional Justice Tribunal in Colombia, on um, macro criminal um, case 002 in, in the Department of um, Nariño. That is the first transitional justice case um, in the country and, and really um, probably in, in the world that's trying to um, treat the territory as a victim of, of the conflict and um, thinking about socio-ecological harm um, and not just human rights and international humanitarian law and the kinds of victimization that are recognized in those legal um, structures and international criminal legal structures. So um, that's a project that's really combining ethnographic and environmental humanities methods and analytics with um, pluralistic legal frameworks and inter-ethnic jurisprudences so I'm working on a project with the with this legal team in the HEP um, 
to do that work of, um, of, of, of rebuilding, of investigating the kind of impacts on the, on the territory um, that the conflict produced. And those are the kind of new projects that, that I've been working on in the past couple of years and that hopefully in the next few years. Well, all of this sounds fascinating. Thank you again, Cristina, for joining me today. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we talked to Cristina Lyons about her new book, Vital Decomposition, published by Duke University Press in 2020. This is your host, Alejandro Ponce de Leon. Stay tuned for our next episode in New Books and Environmental Studies. <laughs>